All right. Well, good morning. It's great to be with so many of you this morning. Um, and again, I want to say welcome to everybody who's joining us on the live stream. Um, thank you to Leo and you guys for leading worship this morning. Um, we walked through some doctrinal statements that we're actually we're going to touch on in our passage this morning. So this morning, we're going to be continuing our series, Summer by the Sea. We're taking a look into Jesus' early ministry at the Sea of Galilee. Uh, last week, as Brian Davis just mentioned, we talked through Jesus' calling of the disciples. Jesus says, come and follow me. And we have this awesome depiction of the disciples dropping what they're doing and immediately following him. It's funny that James and John actually leave their father in the boat after following Jesus. They just leave Zebedee out on the boat with them. But um, this morning, we're going to take a look into maybe a little bit more of a negative depiction of the disciples. It's not too, too bad, but... It's interesting that through their successes and failures in this story, maybe we can see ourselves in our relationship with God, how we interact with him, and how our faith wanes, but God's doesn't. Um, the disciples are called out on the boat into a furious storm this morning, and it's funny, um, the disciples are not unfamiliar with these waters that they're on. The Sea of Galilee is where all four of the disciples we know so far have been fishermen their entire lives. They're very familiar with this. And this storm is something that takes them off guard, not because they're unfamiliar, but because of the severity of it. So uh, with that being said, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew 8, 23, and we'll read through together as we start this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Then he got into the boat with his disciples, and they followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Amazing power our God has. Let's pray together. God, we give you this time of worship as we look into your word, as we look into faith and what it takes to believe. What is our faith in you, God? We ask your blessing over this time. We ask that your words would enter our hearts, that we would prepare our hearts, that we would open our hearts to the message you have for us this morning, and that we would go away taking something with us, God. Your word transforms. You send it out, and it accomplishes the purpose you have for it. So we ask that blessing over the service this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're looking into Matthew 8 this morning, and it's really interesting. Matthew, in, at this point in his narrative, is pointing out this idea of faith. Uh, the chapter, chapter 8 starts with a healing by Jesus, and we don't see it right away. This is the healing of the leper. We don't see it right away, but the healing of the leper is directly tied to the idea of Jesus calming the storm in Matthew 23. The thread that ties these two ideas is faith. Uh, as we jump in in just a second, we'll see that the man with leprosy displays faith. There's another display of faith through a centurion man, and then the disciples of the third display of faith. So, in Matthew 8, we have three displays of faith. Two positive through the man with leprosy in Matthew 8.1. The second positive with the centurion in Matthew 8.5. And then the negative de depiction that we just read from the disciples in Matthew 8.23. Um, so in order, in order to interact with this passage, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is biblical faith? 
That's the question we're going to be answering throughout today. So this slide is blank, but we're going to fill it in. What does the Bible call us to in our faith? And how can a renewed understanding of faith impact the way we see God working in our lives? And as we look at this word faith, we understand that our culture does have its own definition of faith. Uh, it doesn't surprise us. It might not surprise you that this actually stands in opposition to what the Bible says about faith. Maybe you've interacted with faith in this way. This is, this is me. Maybe you've gone down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos. This is <laughs> definitely my story of videos of, you know, we talked about instant karma not too long ago and how we love that justice. Um, a similar type of thing is, you ever seen a video of like a would-be robber getting stopped by like some good Samaritan just out on the street? The guy runs out of the store with the cash and he just gets decked by a guy walking the street, the good Samaritan. And you see sometimes the top comment on a, on a video like this is something along the lines of, this restored my faith in humanity. It's interesting. Maybe another way we interact with faith in our culture is through the news. Um, this one's very common for me. I'm sure it is for you as well. We see something on the news that troubles us. We see politics going in a way we don't like. We see the world in a direction that we're fearful of. And when we interact with people, we are trying to find hope in what seems hopeless. And we say something along the lines of, well, we just have to have faith. Things are hard, but we just have to have faith that they're going to work out. And in both of these ways, in this idea of somebody restoring your faith in humanity, or any idea for that matter, an idea that someone or something can restore your faith, and in the sense that we just have to have faith in order to make it through, we see that our culture is saying that faith is based on your strength. Faith is an action, something that you can do, or something that someone does to you, and that's how your faith is strengthened. And the problem is, this falls short of the faith that we see in the Bible. And we're influenced by it, for sure. Matthew 8 offers us more. The gospel offers us more in our faith. As we look into Matthew 8, I want to ask you a question. Where do you struggle to find faith in God? And in other words, where do you fear that God doesn't have control? As we continue, let's take a look into Matthew 8.1. Let's read the story of Jesus healing the man with leprosy. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. The man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. There's two things he's saying in this. He's saying, one, Jesus, you can heal me of my disease. And the second thing we might not catch is he's saying, Jesus, you can make me ceremonially clean. A man with leprosy in a Jewish community would have to stay outside the community. He wouldn't be able to interact with other people because if they came in contact with his disease, they would be unclean as well. And in order to restore his cleanliness, he not only had to be healed of his disease, but he had to trek to Jerusalem and appear before priests in order to return to his society. But Jesus turns the story on its head in a cool way. Do you see how Jesus heals the man? Jesus touches the man. He reaches out in his hand and touches him. And instead of the leprosy making Jesus unclean, the overwhelming cleanliness and perfection of Christ makes the unclean clean. 
An amazing story. Let's go on to Matthew 5, or Matthew 8, 5, excuse me. We see another story of one displaying faith through the centurion. Let's read in, in uh, verse 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Let's skip down to verse 13 where Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. What's happening in this story? Well, number one, the centurion is one of only two Gentiles we see in all of Matthew that reaches out to Jesus seeking healing. The only other story we see of a Gentile coming to Jesus this way is in Matthew 15 with the healing of the Canaanite woman or the restoration of the Canaanite woman. A man of authority, a soldier in charge of an army, humbles himself before Jesus, a Jewish man. And Jesus asks him this question, shall I come and heal him? And again, what we might not catch is what Jesus is saying here is if he goes into this Gentile household, he's unclean. In the same way that touching a leper would make you unclean, entering an unclean Gentile household would make Jesus unclean. We find out that Jesus doesn't actually care about that barrier between him and the centurion. But he's calling the centurion's faith into question by asking, should I become unclean and go into your household in order to heal this man? The centurion is amazing what he says next. He says, no, I don't deserve for you to come into my house. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 9, he says, For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And what he's saying there is, Jesus, I'm a man of authority. And a man of authority recognizes authority when he sees it. I have authority. I know when authority is in place. And I see it in you. I see the authority you have. I believe there's a power that you have to heal. And you don't even have to be there in person. How amazing is that? The faith of the leper and the faith of the centurion are not in something they've seen before. They haven't seen Jesus perform a miracle. The leper had no evidence, physical evidence, that Jesus could heal him, but he believed. The centurion had no physical evidence either. And what's actually even more incredible about his faith is never before in the scriptures has Jesus healed somebody from a distance. This is the first time. We see in Matthew 4 that Jesus walks around Galilee going to people and healing them, but he never heals from a distance. This centurion is not only believing in something he hasn't seen, he's believing in something that hasn't even happened yet. That's some faith. Both of these men display incredible faith in their humbling themselves before Jesus, coming to him and saying, I believe in the power that you have. Now with this context, let's go back and read our passage for today, Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Then Jesus got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. And he replied, O oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? So we're seeing 
displays of good faith, and then the disciples with their display of poor faith. But what I want to emphasize right now is we might want to make the conclusion of we understand why the disciples display poor faith in this moment. But I want to caution us towards jumping to that conclusion. See, based on our cultural faith, based on a strength-based action faith, we might understand that the centurion and the leper display good faith because they believe Jesus can heal them, and the disciples have bad faith because they don't believe enough, and that's why they're afraid. And if that's our understanding, then all we'll get from this passage is, well, you just have to have enough faith that Jesus will calm your storm. And I want to emphasize today, Jesus absolutely has the power to calm your storm. This is a passage of a miracle, displaying Jesus' power over nature, displaying his power over what troubles us. That is an encouragement we can take from this. But it's not all we have. And I definitely want to emphasize that it's not about our strength. It's not about us believing enough that he can calm the storm. The Bible offers something more. And not only that, we need more. Because our struggles are real. In an ideal world, it's really nice to say, well, Jesus can calm your storm, because it's true. But I came in contact this week as I was preparing this message. I came in contact with something that kind of set me back a bit. I was meeting with some people I knew from youth group back in high school, and we were going around sharing prayer requests and praises for what God has been doing in our lives. A lot of encouragement, a lot of amazing stories. Um, but we got around to one of my friends, and she said to us, I'm struggling. So my mom's cancer's back. I had another friend a couple weeks earlier come to me and say, I don't know what to do. My dad just walked away from his faith. And I don't know how to handle that. The man who brought me up in my faith just walked away. And I don't know what that means for my relationship with God. You see... It's really nice to say that Jesus can calm our storm, but what happens when our storm needs more than just some encouraging words? What happens then? Our struggles are real. And in this story, I want to tell you that the struggles of the disciples are real as well. The disciples are going through something significant. How do we know this? The only four disciples we can confirm are in this boat, in this story, are Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And what do they have in common? They're all Galilean fishermen. They're very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. They're very familiar with what can happen on those waters. Galilee rests in the fault line between two tectonic plates, the African tectonic plate and the Arabian tectonic plate. And if you can remember anything from your geography lessons, when those plates rub together, earthquakes and hurricanes rise up, all kinds of natural disasters, and the Great Rift Valley which Galilee is situated on, is directly on top of those plates. So waves rise up when those plates rub together. And not only that, but Galilee is resting in the basin of the Great Rift Valley, surrounded by mountains on all sides. So winds sweep through that valley, the winds and the waves. And the disciples know. They're very familiar with these. They've been on these waters their whole lives. So if you should believe that this story is significant by any reason, believe it by the reason that four men who have been on these waters their whole lives are petrified of the storm they're in. This storm is not uncommon in the sense that they've never experienced a storm on Galilee before. They know exactly what to expect when they get on Galilee. They know as short as the distance is from one shoreline to the other, it is not an easy journey. 
but this must have been some storm to frighten even them. We know our struggles are real because the Bible testifies to it. I want to read from you from, from Psalm 42. If you know me, you know I love this psalm. <laughs> I've referenced it more times than I can count here. But let's read, starting in verse 6. The psalmist says, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Verse 7, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. God, you are swamping me out. What you're putting me through right now, I can't handle. The storm is too much. And it feels like you're the one that's causing this. It feels like because you're the one in control, you can stop this, but I feel like you're against me. Let's continue. This is amazing. By day, the Lord directs his love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all the day long, where is your God? And we've felt that before, have we not? We see the struggle that we're going through personally in our lives. We see the struggle that the world is going through. And opponents ask us, our foes ask us, where is your God in the midst of this? How can you have faith in God? And it's not only other people. But how many times have we asked, where is our God in those moments? How many times have we questioned, God, are you even there? But the psalmist doesn't stop there. Verse 11, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. The psalmist is saying, through the pain and the agony, through the challenges and through the hardships that we face, our lack of faith, our lack of trust, our fear, bring us to a position of need before God. The sea, the representation all throughout Scripture of all chaos and evil is rising up around us. The winds and the waves are swamping us. We need God to act. Because our lack of faith brings us into a position of need before Him. Amidst the chaos around us, we need God to take action. The disciples know this. Turning back to our story, in verse 25, the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Our lack of faith draws us into a position of need before him. The disciples say, I've got nothing else. Lord, save us. And what does Jesus do? He acts. In the midst of the chaos that the disciples are facing, in the midst of the waters rising around them, Jesus asks an amazing question. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Jesus, look around you. Look at the waters rising around us. The, in Mark, we see the, the boat is threatening to break apart. What type of power does Jesus have? to look at the storm and say, why are you so afraid? And what type of power do we have this morning to find comfort 
in that God. Jesus asking this question does not diminish the power of the storm. It emphasizes his power and his control over it. The storm is real. The struggles you face are real. They are beyond belief real. They are so hard to get through, and God does not deny that. He actually knows exactly what we're going through. Jesus is the evidence. Jesus walked among us so that he would know exactly what we're going through. God is not diminishing the power of the storm. He's emphasizing his control over it. And he also doesn't wait for us to have faith. Our faithlessness doesn't threaten the faithfulness of God. In Mark 4, verse 38, this is the parallel passage in Mark. Mark is much more, uh, he's much more critical of the disciples every time. You'll see that if you read Mark. Mark says, the, te- or the, the disciples come to Jesus and wake him saying, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Instead of, Lord, save us, it's, teacher, don't you care if we drown? What's Jesus' answer to that? Of course I do. Of course I care. Verse 26. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The disciples turn to Jesus in their moment of desperation, and he provides. We see that in Matthew 8. Faith in all of these depictions is bred not out of the strength that these people have, but out of their desperation. The disciples turn to Jesus when they have nowhere else to go. They're fearful of their lives being lost, and they turn to Jesus saying, Lord, save us. We have nowhere else to go. We need you. Our other two men are in a moment of desperation too, though. Do we see this? The leper doesn't come to Jesus in full faith, confidently strutting up to Jesus and saying, you can heal my disease. He falls at Jesus' feet because he has nowhere else to go. He has healing from nowhere else. The centurion trusts Jesus, humbles himself before a Jewish healer. He breaks the cultural barriers to seek out a believer, a, a healer that he believes can heal. He believes in the power Jesus has. He's so desperate that he humbles himself before a Jewish man. It's very uncommon for the time. Bringing Jesus into this position of authority above a soldier. And the disciples turn to Jesus when they have nowhere else to go. When they have no other hope, they turn to Jesus in their desperation. Faith is bred out of desperation, not strength. And I want to tell us today, this is our main point, that faith is not about our strength. It's about us depending on God when we can't be strong. Faith is bred out of desperation in these passages because these people don't have the strength. That's the whole point. They can't have enough strength to make it on their own. They need God to be strong for them. Jesus heals. He honors the healing that these men ask for, that the centurion and the leper ask for, because of their faith, because they depend on Him. The disciples look to God because they have nowhere else to go. Faith is bred out of desperation, not strength. And what's the source of our strength? 
The psalmist in Psalm 121 says, I look up to the mountains and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I look to the creation. I see the power. But does my power come from the mountains? No. It comes from the creator. It comes from the one who made the heavens and the earth. And the question, where is your God in the midst of our turmoil? He's right here with us. He is walking us through it. Do you see it? Do we believe it? And what happens when we don't believe it? Does he still act? Is he still faithful to provide for us, even when we don't believe he will? Faith looks like depending on God when it looks like we're drowning and when it looks like he might not be there at all. Our faith goes beyond our circumstances. It's not about building up a belief that he can calm the storm. It's about falling back on him when the storm swamps you out because you have nowhere else to go. It's belief that God can calm the storm, but it looks differently. Do you see that? It's not building up enough strength to run headlong into the storm and say, God's got this. It's more like you're the only one who can calm the storm. So I'm depending on you to be faithful to do it. I'm relying on you. Because my strength comes from nowhere else. And this morning, I want to tell us that God has provided for us, so we never have to ask the question that the disciples ask in Mark 4. Don't you care that I'm drowning? Because God has answered that question with such an emphatic yes. The despair in the midst of the question, don't you care that I'm drowning, is something that we never have to feel. Why? Because that rejection was taken by someone else. That rejection was placed on Jesus. The one with all power, the one with the authority to calm the wind and the waves, humbles himself on a cross in order that we don't have to feel abandoned by God, in order that we will never be abandoned by God. From the cross, Jesus is the only one who can claim abandonment by God. Hear these words. From the cross, Jesus cries out the words of David from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He looks up to God in his desperation, but he sees his father's back. Jesus is the only one whose storm overcame him and God didn't provide. And not for no reason but so that you never have to face a storm alone. So that what you're facing in your life, these real struggles that we have, are something that we don't have to find our own strength in. But we find the strength of God in them because Jesus took the abandonment by God that we deserve so that we have direct access to God. He was abandoned so that we don't have to be. And he's not asking us to disregard our storm but to put our hope in him when we can't stand in the midst of it. You don't have the strength. That's the whole point. But where will you go? Where will you turn to when you find yourself lacking strength? This is the disciples' response in verse 27. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Matthew gives us this answer. 
Matthew was crafting this answer all throughout his gospel. From the beginning of his gospel, we start out with this is the genealogy of Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The one who will pay the price for the sins of Israel. The one who will save Israel. And he doesn't do it by strength. He doesn't do it by his power. He does it by his sacrifice. Jesus dies for our sins in order to pay the price for them. In order that we don't have to feel the shame and abandonment from our sins that we deserve. That shame, that abandonment was taken on Jesus and he died. But we know the end of the story. Thanks be to God that the story doesn't end there because Jesus rises from the grave three days and he's up. He resurrects. He dies, is buried, and rises from the dead in order to save us from our sins and in order to walk us through that same pattern. We are dead to our sins. We are buried and we are raised to new life through Jesus Christ. And the power that raised him from the dead gives us life. Let the weak say, I am strong by the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead. We'll sing that in a second. What a beautiful truth that is. And the disciples see Jesus again when he's resurrected. Let's turn to Matthew 8, verse 16. Oh, excuse me, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The last words we get in Matthew's gospel concerning the disciples are, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. But again, I ask, what's Jesus' response? What does Jesus do in their lack of faith when it shows itself again? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Faith is not about our strength. It's about depending on God when we aren't strong. And what happens when we can't trust? What happens when our faith falls short? What happens when we doubt Him? He still works. And He is calling us. The last words of Matthew's Gospel are an encouragement to us today. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What are you fearful of? What causes you to lack faith in God? Will you find your encouragement in the fact that Jesus has promised that He is always with us. The Spirit goes with us. God is with us always. So in our storm, we can turn to Him. We have hope. We fall back on the confidence we have in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the payment of our sins. That is our faith this morning. I want to turn to one more place before we wrap up this morning. Would you turn to Revelation 21 with me? If we talk about 
the faith, the confidence we have in what Jesus has guaranteed to us, we have to talk about the end of the story. We have to talk about this. What an amazing truth. John declares to us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. What separates you from full trust that God has you covered this morning? What is your struggle? What is your storm? Well, we find our rest in the fact that God has promised there is an end to that struggle. Its days are numbered. And He's making all things new. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. In the midst of our storm, we have a God who has paid the price for our sins, has raised from the dead, and has guaranteed that the struggles you face are momentary. Everlasting God, momentary affliction. Our struggles are real. God confirms that. We know this to be true. The Scriptures testify to it. The disciples testify to it. Their struggle is real, and our struggle is real. But what's more powerful than the storm we face is the God who can face that storm, say, why are you so afraid? And rebuke the wind and the waves. That's our God. That's our hope this morning. So when you can't be strong, would you find your faith in depending on God in your moments of weakness? And until the reality of the new heaven and the new earth, when every tear is wiped away, when there is no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, until that day, let us look back to the cross in awe of the price paid for us by Jesus and the resurrection that we follow him in. That's our faith. Let's pray. God, how amazing is your power that before the storms of our lives, you stand up. When we're weak, you say, why are you so afraid? Because, Lord, you are powerful over the storm. And, Jesus, you have paid the price for us so that we don't have to experience the abandonment that we fear. You are always with us. So, God, we know our storms are real. We know our struggles are real. But we believe in your power when we are weak. We trust you this morning. And as we come to the table in communion together. Let's look to the cross in adoration of the price paid by Jesus, the abandonment He faced. And then let us take that into celebration of new life that we are raised to in the same pattern that Jesus experienced. Death, burial, resurrection. God, You have shown us an incredible example of Your power. And we believe in it. And when we're weak, let us not rely on our own strength, let us rely on the strength that you have to bring us through and to provide for us. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.